Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this. Talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Fleetmore. And I'm your other host, Sarah Century. And today we have many people from Wawak. I'm Nola. I'm the editor in chief of Wawak. There is some debate as to how that's pronounced, but I pronounce it Wawak. <laughs> and yeah, that's me. I'm Kaylee Hearn. I'm the reviews editor at Wawak, which is very fun to say out loud, Wawak. <laughs> <laughs> And I've also written for outlets like Panel by Panel, Shelf Dust, and the 2000 AD blog. And I'm Adrian Risha. I write for WAWAC, and I also just recently became the assistant editor of Comics Academe. Welcome, everyone. We are very excited to talk to you all about criticism and why it's important. We are so excited. (laughs) I'm going to sing a little song about it. I'm so excited. (laughs) That's going to the top of the hit charts. (laughs) So, I'm going to make us so much money. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to literally double our money. <laughs> so we'll just start from the very beginning. What got you interested in criticism? Like, what was the first thing that made you be like, I love criticism. I love reading it. I love writing it. Like, what sparked your interest in it? I don't know that anything specifically, like, there was a specific inciting incident. So much as uh, I just have a lot of opinions and I like to yell on the internet. <laughs> But I mean, really, that's what it is. I, you know, I've been reading comics since I was a kid and learning a lot about storycraft and things like that. And and I just I read things and they give me opinions and I want to talk about them. And Claire, back when she was uh, in my position, gave me that opportunity. Highly relatable content. I also have opinions and like to yell on the internet, and that is how <laughs> I became a writer. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's weird how that's the <laughs> the new intro to writing. <laughs> Is like, oh, you yell on the internet a lot. Maybe you should be a writer. And it's like, hmm, (laughs) yeah, I guess I should be. Because I remember I didn't have a writing background whatsoever. And it was totally that, like somebody just being like, wow, you sure talk a lot. Maybe you should write. Yeah, I I won't lie. We've recruited a lot of writers to Woolwack that way. (laughs) Nola, that's literally how you got me to do it. It works. (laughs) It was a tweet that had gone sideways in some ways. But I'm also an academic by training, so I do a different kind of criticism every day. And I didn't come to comics until after I had decided to do something in an academic way. So writing for WOWAC, I had tweeted something and Nola reached out and asked me if I wanted to write about it, which was the first time, but definitely not the last time that that would happen. Uh, (laughs) And I only started writing reviews, like that kind of criticism last summer because a comic had made me upset and I had things to say about it. And now it's become a way to do a different kind of writing than I do in school and one that more people read, which is really nice. Also highly relatable content. <laughs> yeah, I I'm like, this is this is exactly how I feel. <laughs> how about you, Kaylee? Did Was there one for you? Yeah, this is probably an interesting definition of criticism. But for me, it's uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
which I watched as a kid. And it was like, it kind of taught me, you know, if we watch something or read something, we can respond to it. It doesn't have to be a passive experience. And I just remember they had one great sketch where they were watching some really kind of crappy 50s B movie, which kind of had sort of a women in refrigerator situation at the end, like the cute girl gets murdered by the creep. And Joel and the bots actually get really angry. They're really mad that they killed the the sweet girl. And so they have a whole skit where they like rewrite the ending of the movie. And they're like, well, it's just fiction. You can write something else. And even as like... <laughs> a really young person that kind of sunk in. And then for comics, I kind of got into the online fandom through the Scans Daily community of the early 2000s RIP Live Journal, <laughs> <laughs> which was like, I had read comics since I was a kid. I was like, oh, now I get to write about them and have opinions. And, you know, it's, it's all downhill from there. <laughs> so this is kind of a dicey one because obviously we're all in a room with a bunch of other critics. <laughs> So, but I wanted to know, is there a critical piece that you remember, you know, it could be recently, it could be a long time ago that just really struck you as this is kind of the perfect critical piece? Oh, that is a dicey question. Mm. (laughs) I'm also like, for you, this must happen literally on the daily because like you read so, so much criticism, obviously. Yeah, it's it's honestly, it's really hard to narrow it down because uh, there are so many pieces that are fantastic and that I love reading. Not to butter up my my co-guests here, but, you know, uh, the stuff that Adrian's been doing since she came to join us, um, the writing about the blue period of comics, which is a term that she invented, I believe. The blue age. Yeah, blue age. Thank you. How would you define the blue age? It's actually the subject of my first peer-reviewed journal article. I can't call it my first publication because I've been writing online and getting published. So uh, it's basically post-2010s comics. I periodize in 20-year periods, so like golden ages, 1930s to 1950s and so on. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of conceptualizing this period post-comicsology where digital distribution really changes how comics are being received and who they're being received by and who they're being made for. So Blue Age, which this is going to be in the article, but it's also online, is named after social media. So the fact that like Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr are blue. Oh, yeah. If that's a good summary. I've written a lot about it and it's going to be out very soon. Yeah, that that all makes sense. All right, sweet. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, so uh, so that's that's one of the things that like I really enjoyed kind of taking her reasoning in, and it's something that I was you know really glad to bring to a whack. And then you know with Kaylee, Kaylee just wrapped up this series, uh, the wedding issues, where she she and uh, somebody else were reviewing, just writing about various comics weddings that have happened. Um, <laughs> and it was a long running series. Um, I'm, I'm a little sad to see it go, honestly. No, yeah. But uh, it's fantastic. And it's it's really great at kind of plumbing the depths of how weird comic book weddings get. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> that was a lot of fun to write. Thank you, Nola. Um, and if Batman and Catwoman ever actually do get married, we'll write about it. <laughs> It was so funny how they didn't get married, though. <laughs> I was like, oh, you got stood up. Yeah. And then it was like Kitty Pride and Colossus's non-wedding was oh like the God. week after. It was, we, yeah. we got we got reamed twice. We were like, no, <laughs> somebody has to get married. Thank God for Gambit and Rogue or we would have been screwed. Exactly. <laughs> yes. As much of like a high drama X-Men fan I am, I was like, yes, <laughs> like she just phased through the ring. That is the coldest breakup I have ever seen in my life. Bravo, Kate. 
<laughs> I mean, also, like, what a what a queer move to be like, oh, my God, I'm literally impermeable. You cannot have me. <laughs> and Ileana is the one who talks her out of it, too. Right. So everything about it was just like gay, gay, gay. <laughs> like, Loved it. That was probably one of the best parts for me was that it wasn't just like her subtextual girlfriend from the 80s. It was <laughs> his sister. Yes. Being like, no, no, you shouldn't do that. Oh, my God. Yes. Aww. Not to distract from the subject at hand. We can do <laughs> another call that's about <laughs> X-Men Gold number 30. <laughs> well, anyway, yeah, those are my two answers. Kaylee or Adrian, do you, either of you have critical pieces that have stood out to you recently? Or Oh, my God. This is hard. I'm the reviews editor. I, I feel like I'd be choosing amongst my beautiful children. <laughs> Um, I really like Doris V. Sutherland's pieces on Wawak. She does really interesting deep dives into topics. Like I believe she's from the United Kingdom. So that's like an area of comics as an American I don't necessarily know a lot about. So Mm -hmm. her pieces are like really interesting. They're very informative deep dives. Her stuff is just fantastic. And God, there are really a lot of good writers online right now, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. And this is not to butter Nola up, but they were the first person (laughs) whose reviews I read when I was trying to figure out how to write a review. Uh, So I went back and I went through the website and I was like, all right, all of these people do great things, but I like trust Nola. Um, And Nola and Kaylee have both edited me. And I think, Nola, you did a piece about reclaiming a certain X-Men character. Oh, yes, the uh, the Wolfsbane thing. Yeah, that was so good. That was very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember that. And then uh, Kate Tansky, who is the editor of Comics Academe, did an interview with the creators of uh, Jimmy Olsen that made me cry. So those are a couple of pieces that stand out for me. Oh, <laughs> that's sweet. It's weird how moving criticism is, right? I mean, I read a ton of criticism from people who have been doing it for like 40 years for, you know, major publications, and they're definitely checked out and done and don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> and then you read people of any age that have such a sustained interest in it and, you know, still love what they're doing. And um, I think you can always kind of tell the difference. Yeah, I think what happens is uh, some critics tend to get focused on the work, the things that they're reviewing. And when those things are consistently not up to standards, it's easy to feel burned out. Mm -hmm. But I find that if I keep my focus on the art of criticism itself, the work of writing and the work of analysis, and my enthusiasm is is in doing that, it's in the process. And uh, I find because of that, I don't get tired of it. Yeah, totally. What do you think the purpose of criticism is in just kind of the larger, I guess, like social context? Because I know that we all get different things from criticism, right? Or I would assume (laughs) that everybody does. For me, the purpose of criticism isn't to say whether something's good or bad, but how and why it does what it does. And that's coming from like a place of writing scholarship. It's not to make a moral judgment about something but to say that it may do something or not do something and whether or not it does that well, it's about really understanding the thing that you're reading or watching or seeing uh, and understanding how that is a product of the world we exist in and also the effect that it might have on the world. So I'm not out here to give like five stars to a comic book. There's no such thing as a perfect comic book, which I think is an important part of criticism is understanding that. Even if I like love a book, it's not that I go and look for something that's wrong with it, but it's understanding that There are parts of this that we need to unpack, whether it's like a really, really great book or one that's more disappointing. So it's really an exercise. I think the purpose of criticism is to just understand the object of the criticism as well as you can. 
For me, criticism is having a conversation with the work, whether that's a comic or a book or a film. You know, what is your personal response to this work, whether that's good or bad? For me, it's like very personal experience. You know, it's like, how did this make me feel? How does this connect to something I maybe love or hate or the other creator's body of work? You know, it kind of just is like being very chatty. (laughs) (laughs) Just like engaging, I guess, right? With like the things that you're putting out there. Engaging is a very good word. Right. Because I hear people just be like, I don't really know what to do with art and stuff like that. Or like, I just read this comic and I'm like, you didn't think about how it applies to other things or like, I mean, I I think that, you know, obviously there's space for everyone, you know, and me being like, I just want to overthink literally every comic I've ever read <laughs> doesn't necessarily be good for everyone. <laughs> you know, to me, it just gives me a lot more to engage with. Right. Yeah, I think for me, it's it's definitely about contextualizing a work, you know, and that can be contextualizing it in the time that it was created, the forces around it that sort of influence that creation, or it can be contextualizing it against a modern period of time. If it's an older work, you can look back over the years with a level of insight that might not have been available back then. And I think it's important because it, it helps us understand where we're coming from and where we're going or where we want to go, I guess. I think that's what it is for me. It's it's just about context. Totally. So obviously, Women Write About Comics is taking something that almost always has been written about by men, or the male critics have been the ones who have gotten the most attention writing. So there's something obviously immediately important, immediately a little bit different about We'll Walk in the way that I feel like I never go into the website being like, uh-oh, like, you know, or anything like that. I feel like it's always thoughtful, you know? Claire was the one who started Wawak, correct? Uh, no, it was uh, Megan Purdy. Oh, I had no idea. Thank you so much for telling me. <laughs> do you think that the general feeling behind Wawak has mostly stayed the same, or do you think that there's been a lot of change over the years? That's a very good question. I definitely think that there's been change. Megan started it, and Claire was uh, editor-in-chief for about a year You know, after Megan and before I took over. And then, so, you know, it's, it's been in different hands over the, the last few years and it's grown from like, you know, it's original sort of basic blog days to like a full grown site. So, you know, it's had all of the, the cosmetic and structural changes, but it's hard to say because like a lot of the infrastructure, a lot of the team and everything that was put into place was all there before I stepped in. Kaylee was doing this before I showed up. Oh, I also didn't know that. Awesome. Yeah. Do you think that there is, I mean, like I say, it's like kind of obvious, but do you think that there is an extra added importance to feminist criticism and criticism that isn't obviously just kind of homogenized? It's important to me when I was like looking at the site and figuring out whether or not I wanted to write for it. That was kind of a, this is a really great place to see a bunch of different voices. And it's not just that there's women, but it's people with marginalized gender identities, uh, genders and people of color. Um, mm-hmm. Like I'm Arab American. So it was important for me to have a place that would let me write about that and does. And to like have a bunch of perspectives that you can't really find on other websites for whatever reason. And as like an educator, as a scholar, I've assigned pieces. Like I've submitted a syllabus for next year. Kaylee and Nola are both on it. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> that's exciting. Thank you. Yeah, it's um, it's a really great source for academics. As primary source text, I'm going to have my students studying reviews and went to teach them how to write because that's how I learned how to write. So I think it's important as a 
critic that that site exists for me to go and say things and write things, but also as a person just existing in like the comics community, that this is a resource that exists not just for me, but for other people. Yeah, everything that Adrienne just said. <laughs> um, but no, it's uh, when I first showed up and when, when I was first learning uh, how to write reviews under Claire, I think I had one review. I can't even remember what it was at this point, but it was uh, it was a truly bad comic. And I was sort of stuck as to how to begin the review because I didn't really know where I wanted to start or what I wanted to talk about. And, you know, I was, I was talking to Claire for advice and I was like, you know, I just, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where to start with this. And she said, then write that. (laughs) So that's where I started. You know, I just started with how confused the comic left me, how irritated I was with the way that it was made. And from that point on, I guess my, my reviews have always been sort of leaning on the edge of personal essays. But, you know, that's what I do. That's, you know, it's my perspective as, as, a, as a critic. So to not relate it to me directly and, and to not relate it to my experiences with the work would seem really hollow. And so I've tried to kind of, for anyone that I'm working with anyway, I try to kind of pass that idea on, which is, you know, each of your individual perspectives matter. Like Adrian was saying, uh, being a person of color, being a person of marginalized gender, things like that, they all matter. They inform how you interact with the work. And again, like she was saying earlier, you can't objectively say whether or not a book is good or bad. All you can say is what your experience was consuming that work and what it meant to you after the fact. And I think that that's important to hear from everybody. I guess it just breaks down to that. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hey, if you want to know how you can support Bitches on Comics, y'all, we got so many ways. You can follow us on Instagram. You can 
Follow us on Twitter. On both those, we are at BitchesOnComics. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash bitchesoncomics. You know what else you can do? You can stop right now, look at your phone, and you can rate and review us. You can give us those five stars you know we deserve. I'm like shaking my boobs. You can't tell, but I am. (laughs) Those five stars you know we deserve. And you can tell us what you love. Tell other people what you love. We are making great content. We're not humble about it. We fucking know. And we want your help making sure we get that great content to the people who need it. I was just curious, what do you think is the thing that people misunderstand the most about criticism? Which, I mean, I can start, uh, people don't understand that I have a thousand word limit. So every time I like post something, somebody's like, well, you forgot about, and I'm like, (laughs) I didn't, I have a thousand words and this character has been around for 70 years. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know what to tell you. My name isn't Wikipedia. So that's one of my big ones. But what does everybody else have? I would say um, criticism is not for the creators. Oh, God. (laughs) That goes out to anyone, any creator on Twitter who's ever term searched and. Oh, my God. Yeah. Reply guide, because it's, it's very easy to take criticism personally if you do that. And good criticism is not a personal attack or a personal validation. It should be about the work. And. Unfortunately, a lot of creators are really thin-skinned. I've had experiences where creators term-searched and found a very mild criticism, I've said, and responded to me. And so I know personally, as a critic, you know, kind of feel that he, you know, it's not fun. <laughs> Good criticism is for the audience. It's for the readers. It's, you know, for the people who will pick up the book and are wondering, is this for me? Uh, you know, is this going to say something to me? Will I like this? So just, you know, don't term-search. Don't do it. Oh my God. Yeah. No, you see that all of the time, right? (laughs) Somebody will just tweet some kind of vague and innocuous comment about a creator and here comes Dan Slott (laughs) has something to say. (laughs) It's like, oh my God. Like Kevin Smith recently retweeted somebody I like a lot, not to rehash somebody else's circumstances, but it's just like, especially if you're, you're one of these Hollywood guys who's got like millions of followers, you know, don't put comic critics on blast. It's not fair. It's not, it, you know. Look at the difference in wages here. <laughs> like, just yeah, like you directed Chasing Amy. It's in the Criterion Collection. Go on with your life, Kevin Smith. Like, Good God, yeah. Leave everybody else alone. Agreed. Um, I think another one for me is uh, people hear the word criticism and they think that it is inherently negative, which is unfortunate because... It's more than that. It's not just tearing things down. It's analysis and it's, it's like I said earlier, contextualization. You know, you write about the good and the bad. And being honest about both is important to the craft, I think. And I, I definitely think that a lot of people do not understand that. Uh, they think that we're just out here tearing things down to make ourselves feel better. And that's not the case. We want these books to be good. We don't want to tear them down. We don't want to have to point <laughs> out these same awful mistakes that are being made over and over and over again. You know, we don't want to have to, you know, in the case of Gail Simone, create websites like Roman and Refrigerators to point Mm -hmm. out something that is a persistent issue that that people are just not stopping. 
Right. Which years later, she still gets hassled over. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, and people are like, well, that's how you got into comics. And she's like, nope, <laughs> that's definitely not. Right. <laughs> or people trying to explain to her what Women Refrigerators even is. Right. I know. Yeah. Wow. Gail Simone's Twitter is something else sometimes. <laughs> it really is. Um, but, you know, there's all these ideas about what it means to be a critic. And I, I always love the uh, creators that go on Twitter or whatever and, and go off about, you know, what critics should be doing. And it's, it's always something that we already are doing <laughs> every yeah. single time. Um, and it just proves that they're not actually reading criticism. Like at all. Yeah. So much as they're, you know, reacting to the fact that somebody wrote something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's the big one. I see that a lot because people have that thing where they're like, well, critics just are failed creators. And it's like so many critics have gone on to be famous creators, like your favorite creators. So I just don't think that that really holds water. So I would agree with that. Yep. That's actually my thing. Um, And this isn't universal, but the idea that critics are want to be creators um, because I don't like aspire to make comics. That's not the way I'm coming at this. But I do think criticism is a great way to develop the way that you read comics so that you know how to make them better. But also, some of us don't want to make comics. We just want to write about them and talk about them (laughs) and talk to other people about them and enjoy them and criticize them and critique them. But we don't want to make them. So that's not universal. This isn't a stepping stone to something else. Not for me and not because there are people who do want to go on and do other things. And this is how they're learning those skills. But that's not universally true for critics. Right. And also you can do more than one thing in your life. Um, like, you can be more than one thing. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out. Yeah. Because I mean, I, I definitely know critics that are just like, I just really like writing criticism. And then it's like, I was a fiction writer before I did any critical work. But just because that's through a platform, it's like I write for sci-fi. So like that's through a platform that more people will know about other than, you know, my underground stuff that I've been doing. So whenever people are just like, well, you just didn't or like, you know, critics are always failed creators. It's like I'm still creating like all of the time. Like I don't I there was never a moment where it was off the table, you know, like, oh, I'll never write a comic because now I've written about comics. So it doesn't make sense, you know. Also, what a bullshit metric of failed it's creators. So like, I'm sorry, is capitalism the only thing you can think about? <laughs> it's fucking ridiculous. Yes. So yeah, I mean, I think this is a perfect segue to what my questions were all about, the relationship between the critic and the creator. And, and I think it's because, yeah, I mean, like, I'm an editor, so I do sort of critique on the front end for a lot of people where I'm like, you can't say that. Or, hmm, I don't know if you realize that your theme is women are dumb and should do what men say. And I don't think you mean that. I hope to God. So, you know, I kind of see part of my role as an editor is like harm mitigation, both like to readers and also to authors. So they actually think about what they're saying. But I'm a creator. I'm a critic. I'm a fan. I'm a nerd. I'm a former academic. I'm all these things. And those things are all part of how I engage with the materials. And so I felt really disappointed, like not for the reasons you said, but I was disappointed when you said uh, it's not about the creators. The critique is not for the creators. I get it because, you know, grow some skin that isn't paper thin. And also it sucks, though, because there is an opportunity to learn. There's an opportunity to learn from your mistakes. We were talking to Gabby fucking Rivera about America Chavez, a fucking great comic. And she was like, you know, I just think I could have done this better. 
why is that such a scary prospect? Why is it so terrifying to really listen to critique or to even think about your art in a critical way so that you're not just falling forward? It would be amazing if more creators had that perspective, honestly. It's a very open-minded, it shows creators are willing to grow in a positive way and consider other viewpoints. Unfortunately, that's not how a lot of creators act on social media. <laughs> For sure. And I think it goes back to what Sarah said. You know, it's this, like, this concept of like, you're either like a, a successful creator or a failed creator. Instead of the idea that like, you're usually a creator who is not doing very well. And sometimes you get better. Like that's just creating any art form. It's a process over a lifetime. And what is the metric for success or failure? Like, what is the what is the the standard that people are judging by? Because you know, I I write comic scripts all the time. Most of them never see publication. It's not because they're failures. It's because I've gotten them out of my system and I'm happy with where they are. Mm. I don't care about publishing them and and becoming a known comic creator. It's not something that is on my radar. When I feel the need to write a script, when I feel the need to do something like that, I do it because I enjoy it. I love that idea. I'm always, you know, I teach writing as well. And people are like, I am so nervous. I can't figure out what my end product is going to be. And I'm like, I get it. If you have goals of publishing and things like that, I get it. I really do. But cannot creation be an end in itself? And I know we're a little bit off like the critical topic, but I'm with you, Nola. Like I write lots of stuff that I'm like, oh, okay, that's done. No one needs to see that. I'll go ahead and just save it. Or you know what? Chuck it, whatever. <laughs> I really liked what you all were saying about the idea of critique as a form of conversation with readers. Ideally, it could be with creators if people weren't, you know, term searching themselves and being defensive asshats. But, you know, like we can have conversations. And if we think about art, and like you were saying, Nola, instead of like figure out what those metrics for success or failure are, or maybe just like fuck that binary, like fuck it, fuck all the binaries. Maybe art is about creating and expressing. And maybe some of that is for an audience. Maybe some of it isn't. But when it is for an audience, I think critique offers such an avenue for understanding how other people see your work. I just don't think most writers know how other people receive their work because, you know, we're all surrounded with people who encourage us. Otherwise, we'd fucking give up. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So Samantha Puck was on the pod in December and she talked about the relationship of the creator critic. And at the time, she was just starting working on a YA novel. And she was like, it's actually funny after such a long tenure of being a critic to like be doing the creative side. And I think, Adrian, maybe you were saying that that is you know, not the format everyone takes. And that's part of what Sam was saying. She was like, you know, that's not really the job of a critic to become a creator. And it's not a good metric of if someone's a good critic to say, have they created what I'm creating? It's kind of like when people are like, uh, this is a bad type of parenting. And someone's like, what, are you a parent? And it's like, nope, but I was a child and I have received parenting. And that's kind of what I think of the relationship between like critique and creation is like, you know, we've all been part of the society of creation. We're all reading all of these things. And critics, your job, our job is to have a specific way of communicating about what it is we're consuming. So like Sarah was saying, you're not just a receptacle of like, oh, I read a comic, the end. It's like, oh, I read a comic and now I can understand how it connects here or there or the other place. 
we had Veronique Emma Hubois on the pod talking about Iron Man Extremis. And it was incredible. And, and reading her beautiful, you know, she has that column, Transmascara, reading her amazing piece about like the ghosts of the 20th century. And Sarah and I both were like, hey, we don't like Iron Man. And I was like, fair enough, you shouldn't. But then when we read it, for me at least, when I read Extremis with that critical lens, with understanding these are all the different resonances, this is what the author is motioning toward off page, that made me feel like, wow, I understand this piece differently. I appreciate this piece differently than I would have without the critique. And so I guess I'm wondering when you think about, you know, let's say we're in a different world, not this world, (laughs) in a world where creators aren't dickheads all the time. Not that everyone is. Also, I'm a creator and I am a dickhead. So just calling it like I see it. What would the ideal relationship be between the critic and the creator? Were it more of a conversation? What What do you all think? I don't want to speak for Kaylee here, but I think when we when we say that criticism isn't for the creator, we're not saying that they can't interact with it, that they can't read from it and and pick it up and learn from it. It's not that. It's just that we're not thinking about them when we're writing this, other than the fact that they're involved with the creation of it. Mm, Totally. We're not writing this to... We're not there to hurt your feelings. Yeah. Right. We're not pointing a weapon at them. We're just analyzing. We're just talking about things. And, you know, ideally, if a creator's got thick skin or, you know, even just is not short-tempered about things, they should be able to join that conversation. There's no reason why they shouldn't be. Like you said with Gabby Rivera, to me, that's the mark of a good creator is somebody who is is analyzing their own work and thinking about it and thinking about what they could do better. And, you know, you're never, you're not always going to be able to see those things. Sometimes you need other people to point them out to you. Everybody's got that. Mm. And... You know, if you don't agree with somebody's perspective, that's fine. You're allowed to not agree with it. And I, I think that's, that's a big thing is I wish that more creators understood that. You know, you do not have to start a fight just because you don't like something we said about your book. <laughs> it's okay to just not like it. Plenty of people have said things about my, my work as a, as a critic that I don't like. And I just keep my mouth shut about it. They're allowed to have their opinions. It's fine. I want to kind of jump on there and say that I think one of the things that the criticism that we do makes kind of evident is that there need to be more people like us on the backside. There need to be more editors. Um, There need to be more people who are putting this work out that are women, that are people of color, that are people of marginalized genders. I think that is something that like we don't get paid to tell you what you did wrong. And so that's not the point. Um, you had an editor that also did that. We're there looking at the final product. And so I think that also affects the way that criticism kind of exists. There are certain creators who I absolutely trust to handle the things that I write about them well. And there are certain creators who I try to avoid writing about because I know that they're not going to take it well. And that's not great for criticism either. I guess I think one thing we have to sort of navigate uh, in the 21st century is and social media is how it kind of strips down or appears to kind of strip down the walls between creators and fans and critics, like uh, social media, Instagram, Twitter gives much more accessibility than there was, you know, when people were just writing letters to the comics journal way back in the day. Um, So I think (laughs) like, I think folks on all sides kind of need to relearn to navigate how we talk to each other as an editor, you know, there have been times where I've had to kind of reel a writer back being like, okay, this kind of veers from saying what you dislike about the work to kind of being a personal attack on the creator. Mm. And that's not fair. You know, we want to kind of keep it professional and 
So that's something I think is good to be mindful of. It's not always everybody showing up in your mentions being a reply guy and or being Kevin Smith <laughs> blowing up your spot <laughs> because you're still mad that people are upset about Batman pissing his pants. So Vita Ayala was talking about how someone, oh, they tweeted at them that they ruined the X-Men. And Vita was just like, what the hell? And so someone came to Vita's defense and was like, Vita, you're amazing. You're so good. You're so perfect. Why would anyone ever critique you? And they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I actually don't care. People can hate my work all they want. But why are they coming to my Twitter and yelling at me? It just really connects to what you were just saying, Kaylee, about that social media aspect. And I've even felt that before, you know, a piece of my sci-fi wire blows up and Sarah and I talk about this all the time. And suddenly I've got people I've never met accusing me of being a misogynist. And I'm like, what the fuck? Whatever ridiculous claim they're making about what I've said in the piece that they haven't even read for the record. What is it you think people need to understand about social media to be able to navigate it in a way that is God, less combative, I guess, less like aggressive towards one another. Uh, the things that you say on social media stay on social media. Mm, yeah. You can delete tweets, but tweets can be screenshotted before that. You have to be prepared for the things that you put on, on the internet to be there forever. As much as Twitter, especially, can make something feel like a real time conversation, you have to be aware that it's not the same as like an in person conversation. You might say something meant to be cutting to a person out loud and, you know, they might take it badly, but you guys can talk it out later and like the sting of that can go away. But when you type it out, when you put it on the internet, it stays. So people are mm. always going to see that. So you have to be aware of what the consequences are of what you're saying in a much more acute way than you do when you're speaking to people. Mm. Because, you know, people's memories, uh, nobody's memory is exact. People's memories flub things. You know, an, an argument that seems like the most important thing in the world at the time, you know, 10 years down the line, you and that person might be laughing about it. But when it's on the internet, when it's something that's written out, it stays there. It's like every bad moment, every ugly little impulse that you've had is there and is just not going anywhere. And I think that too many people, especially in the heat of the moment, do not think about that fact. Yeah, the internet's forever, right? Don't fuck with that. Yep. No, that's absolutely a great point. And shit, I want to turn that into a PSA and send it to everyone forever. But I also think, you know, there's also a piece where it's like when you at someone, when you tag someone in a piece, people don't think about it. But that's kind of like knocking on my door and being like, hey, bitch, I don't like your fucking shit. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about because I haven't I don't know who tweeted the thing out. I don't know who got this connection mm -hmm. for you. So I don't think people realize like when you go and you at Vida Ayala, they're at home living their life, doing their thing. Maybe they open Twitter and now they got someone yelling at them about something. And they're like, wait, let me can I even piece together what you're upset about? So I, I think it's so good. I think we don't we don't think enough about the reality that like social media has changed the way we interact and it, it changes who we or it should at least change who we present ourselves to be or how we present ourselves at the very least so that we can be. I don't know, man, we're fucking all stuck on this goddamn planet together, just spinning around through space. Like, I don't want to have six million enemies or 
billion enemies either, you know? Like, why can't we just try to, like, not be, I don't know, assholes all the time? But I ask myself this question every day. <laughs> this is like Sarah and I just tweet, like, text each other, like, why? 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 <laughs> why is somebody trying to explain, like, the premise of Batman to me in my comments? <laughs> like... I obviously know about comics. I've written 500 articles. <laughs> like, oh boy. It just doesn't matter, though. Yeah, I always try to do, like, I'll talk about some creators by name, but it's always someone who I'm just like, this person will literally never read my tweets, and it's fine. And those are always the ones where you get so, so many people defending the creator. Like, if I talk about Alan Moore and I'm like, hey, there's some stuff. I'm not a huge fan of this guy sometimes. And I'll say it in, like, a nice, jokey way. And you'll always have people being like, why do you hate him so? And it's like, A, Alan Moore will never read my tweet. We don't have to worry about it. B, the things that I'm talking about, it's not even a medium that he writes in anymore, you know? So that doesn't matter. Like, So I think about... You know, social media being forever, as you say, but then I'm also just like, yeah, I kind of just like pick and choose who I'm going to talk about, I guess, like on social media. Like I have gone to great lengths to not trash Jeff Johns a bunch of times <laughs> recently, especially. So I'm just kind of like, I don't know. These people like won't read my tweets, but you also are like, well, Kevin Smith would never read my tweet either. Right. But he does. Right. Apparently he doesn't have a lot going on. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of us on the internet just kind of really need to re-examine boundaries. Like, for example, when I say uh, criticism is not for the creators, that's also me kind of trying to respect a boundary that maybe only exists in my head. But, you know, like I write a lot about uh, Jonathan Hickman's X-Men run. And when I write those pieces, I, and, you know, tweet them and whatever, I'm trying not to like throw rocks at Jonathan Hickman's windows. Like, senpai, notice me! Notice me, Hickman! <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I'm trying to recognize, you know, he's a busy man who's doing his own thing and I'm not trying to, I don't know, again, throw rocks at his window. It's like, I'm doing my thing. You're doing your thing. We're both coexisting peacefully. Probably you have no idea I exist and that's fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I relate to all of that. I'm like, I would rather no one ever knew I existed, but yet somehow I still get paid. I don't know how to do that. But if I figure it out, I'm looking forward to my anonymity. <laughs> so, you know, this is this is a weird example, but I, I just I feel like I'm talking to the right people to ask this. So I was reading about Kason Callender, who just released a YA novel, Felix Ever After. And right after it came out, got this review and Kason was kind of, you know, grappling with it on Twitter, sort of talking about the review and ultimately ended up writing a letter to the reviewer being like, you fucked this up hardcore. Because the reviewer's lens was like, where's my trauma porn about the trans character? Why aren't these black characters more black? And it's like, oh my God, you're talking to like a black trans author. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Also, those are just terrible things to say in general. So I, I thought that was an interesting example of a time when an author... I believe that they felt they had the responsibility to respond to this critique because it was so deeply mischaracterizing their work. Obviously, that's why WAC was founded, but that's not who all critics are. There are lots of critics who are out there saying there's people on, you know, websites that we don't go to because why would you saying things that are just off the rails, make no sense 
also very anti-progressive values, those things. But then this is like, you know, this was a pretty middle of the road publication, you know, lobbing these claims against this black trans author that their book isn't black enough or deals enough in like the trauma of transness. So I guess I'm just curious, like, what do you think the role then there is of, I mean, obviously you all would never publish critique like that, but you're part of the world of criticism and that happens in your field. You know, I think, uh, Criticism is a lot like comic books in that there are great pieces of criticism and there are terrible pieces of criticism. It sounds like whoever wrote that particular review uh, probably could have benefited from a stern editor. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, I think in the case of this author, when you have some very, very deep objections to what a work of criticism is saying, and it's not just, you know, saying that this is bad or whatever, but in this case, when you're having some some very deep objections to a critic's understanding of what it means to be a person of color, or what it means to be trans, I honestly, I, I respect them for starting a dialogue in, you know, in a mature fashion, grappling with it on Twitter. But but then when the decision came to reach out to the critic to do so in the form of a letter is, to my mind, a, a great way to do things like that. You know, if you really need to have that conversation, you get to do it in private you get to see whether or not the review was written in good faith. You get the chance to find some common ground, maybe spread a little understanding. It's unfortunate that trans people especially have to do so much educating mm. as to our identities and what it means to to write about us. It's it's unfortunate that we have to take that burden on, but if no one else is going to do it, then obviously I'm going to. Mm-hmm. I got opinions. I'll yell about them. <laughs> yeah, I also think about that all the time, and I'm like, ugh. Given all my privileges, like, shit, I'm the person who should probably, you know, as a trans person, do the work more so than more vulnerable members of our communities, you know? I hear that. I just, I kind of want to add, I think it's, um, and I haven't read that review. I don't know anything about that. I think it's great that the private letter, like Nola said, um, to do it offline is great. I don't think we should elevate bad criticism because that's meant to get clicks. Um, (laughs) Sometimes that's the point. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's and there, but there's all also the no like I've definitely criticized other people's writing on Twitter, but I don't tag them. I don't name them. I go to the publication and I say you shouldn't have published this. Uh which is maybe another way to deal with that kind of a thing. Mm. I did tag the publisher and they did take that article down. So I don't feel bad about that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a moment. <laughs> But like I, and this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I have rules for the way that I use Twitter, which are the product of having been harassed. I don't tag people if I have anything even mildly critical to say about them. Mm. I try not to tag people generally unless I have like a really earnest question or if I would like them to see a thing because I it was nice. And then like I don't term search. I'm not that big of a name, but like I won't do it. I, <laughs> um, there's just certain ways that I think social media is not meant to optimize kindness, and it's not meant. To for us to necessarily be our best selves. Mm. But there's definitely, on the flip side of that, pros to it. Like, there's connecting with other people. There's connecting with whack. There's connecting with other critics. The way that you relate to it is going to be the way that it works with you. So on both ends, just generally speaking, people could be kinder online. (laughs) Oh, God, right? (laughs) To say the least. This is why my Twitter is mostly for making just terrible jokes. That's that's what I use it for. (laughs) I'm not interested in having in-depth conversations. Yeah, also Madeline Pryor posts. <laughs> yes. yes. I'm always very delighted to see pop up in my feed. So <laughs> so I want to end with a question about like, what are your wildest dreams for criticism, whack, either as an individual, as an organization? Like, where do you want to see yourselves go? 
This is going to sound kind of mercenary, but I want to see our critics get paid. Uh, we'll back as a volunteer site. Get that money. Yeah, it's not a site that people write at to get paid. And that's that's part of the reason why our criticism is a little bit different than everyone else's. People are writing about the things that they want to write about. People are writing because they want to be there. They're not just writing to earn a paycheck. That said, I would like to be able to pay them. And, you know, we don't have a big content brand coming along to write checks for us. So we kind of do everything ourselves. And uh, I mean, that's my pie in the sky dream. I, I want Wobak to be the kind of place that elevates marginalized voices across whichever axis you would like to go. And I would like Wobak to be the kind of place that sees those voices thrive, both in terms of their criticism and in terms of, you know, being able to pay their bills. Nola, this is where you plug the Patreon. I was going to ask if I thought there was a Patreon. <laughs> there is a Patreon. I'm terrible. I'm subscribed. I'm terrible at, self, at, at promotion in that way. Yeah. Go to the Wolfpack Patreon. Give us your money. It is worth it. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree with Nola. We would really love to build to a paid model. And if you donate to our Patreon, that helps us get there. Everything we raise on Patreon goes to hosting and keeping the site running and keeping us totally independent. We're not run by any like hedge fund vampires. Thank God. Actually, Sarah and I and, are both um, hedge fund vampires. <laughs> oh, no. Sh- we should have told you that before the call. But Beats don't fail me now. <laughs> <laughs> We're also hoping to, um, you know, work on more zines, you know, get those going. And I'd love us to, you know, keep publishing outside of just the website, get some like digital zines going, maybe physical zines someday when conventions happen again, please, someday conventions one day i believe in the in the after times yes i mean i am i am very old school i love to see things in print i would love to just hold in my hands a physical waxing with like work by our wonderful writers Mm. patreon please donate make it happen yeah um all of that i'd also like to see more people of color writing for the site i think that's important um especially comics is just extremely white Comics is so white. Yes. Um, comics criticism is white. Comics creation is white. Comics scholarship is white. So it'd be really, really nice to have other voices, especially because there's more characters of color now, um, to have people writing about them, to have people writing about creators of color, just more people of color. That's my wish for everything in my life. Yes. And people can pitch us. Our pitches, you know, we're open. So please, if you really are dying to write something, please give us content, please. <laughs> editors at wwacomics.com yes that's send your pitch there that's important thank you nola <laughs> mad relatable sarah and i did a whole spot for this publication we're doing and then we just completely didn't tell anyone the website <laughs> we're like oh wait let us re-record that <laughs> yeah i've definitely been there too well this has been a damn delight you are all so cool you made me think so hard tonight in the best way I love Wawak. I love what you're doing. You have some of the best pieces out there that are breaking down what's happening in comics. And it's just really nice to be able to read them in these really beautiful, beautifully written, clearly care so much. They're not clickbait. Hallelujah. And it's just like a a great time. So thank you for being here with us on Bitches on Comics. Make sure, listeners, you have to go check them out. You know, you can just Google Wawak. That's what I do. And it comes right up. And then also make sure to go to patreon.com slash, is it Wawak? I think it's Wawak. Yeah, this has been super great. Nola, Kaylee, Adrian, do you want to share your personal social media info or do you want to not do that? 
My Twitter is my first name and my last name, so that's Nola Fal, N-O-L-A-P-F-A-U. Feel free to find me there, like Sarah said, making thirst posts about Madeline Pryor uh, and or terrible jokes. <laughs> if you want to come and argue with me about something, don't. <laughs> uh, I'm on Twitter at Ronch Ronch Ronch, which is R-O-N-C-H. It's the sound effect Rorschach makes when he chews on sugar cubes because I'm a huge nerd. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. Uh, my mom calls me Roach Roach Roach, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> That's a whole other thing. That's what I'm going to do after this. Oh! (laughs) And I'm on Twitter at my name, so at Adrian Risha. It's a lot of letters. uh, A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E-R-E-S-H-A. Love it. Well, we we will obviously be following you, not in a creepy way. I realize that sounded weird, but, you know, <laughs> social media, it always sounds weird. But we will be. We'll be following you. We'll be, you know, retweeting everything from a whack. We really believe in what y'all are doing, and it's definitely like kindred spirits between the pod and y'all. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate that. Yes. I also get the email that's a roundup every month from you all. I don't know if that's only Patreon that gets that, but I get this email from you all. And it always has so many articles that I missed on social media. So that is one of the handiest things for me is I just get this like newsletter that's like, hey, you forgot to read Wawak for like the last three weeks. And I'm like, oh, snap, I better catch up. So that's been really easy for me. Is that specific to the Patreon? I don't believe it is, no. I think there's a sign-up for it. Unfortunately, I'm yeah. not the person to ask because Wendy handles all of that. Thank you, Wendy. <laughs> Wendy is amazing. Yeah, Wendy is is really like our backbone. She handles everything behind the scenes, and she's she never wants to be like publicly lauded for it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Wendy, you're the best, and I love you. Oh, my God. That was so cute. I think we have to end there. That's just too We are a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B.T.C.H.E.S.O.N. C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And do you remember there's no I'm bitch? I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor, and you can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S-E underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization.
Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season two. Get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you. And let's make season two even more memorable together.